0: Chapter 10 of Robinson Crusoe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Life and Adventures of Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Chapter 10 Tames Goats. I cannot say that after this, for five years, any extraordinary thing happened to me, but I lived on in the same course, in the same posture and place as before chief things I was employed in, besides my yearly labour of planting my barley and rice, and curing my raisins, of uh, both of which I always kept up just enough to have a sufficient stock of one year's provisions beforehand, I say, besides this yearly labour, and my daily pursuit of going out with my gun, I had one labour, to make a canoe, which at last I finished. So that, by digging a canal to it of six feet wide and four feet deep, I brought it into the creek, almost half a mile." As for the first, which was so vastly big, for I made it without considering beforehand, as I ought to have done, how I should be able to launch it, so, never being able to bring it into the water, or bring the water to it, I was obliged to let it lie where it was, as a memorandum to teach me to be wiser the next time. Indeed, the next time, though I could not get a tree proper for it, and was in a place where I could not get the water to it at any less distance than as I have said, near half a mile, yet, as I saw it was practicable at last, I never gave it over, and though I was near two years about it, yet I never grudged my labour, in hopes of having a boat to go off to sea at last. However, though my little periagua was finished, yet the size of it was not at all answerable to the design which I had in view when I made the first. I mean, of venturing over to the terra firma, where it was above forty miles broad, Accordingly, the smallness of my boat assisted to put an end to that design, and now I thought no more of it. As I had a boat, my next design was to make a cruise round the island, for as I had been on the other side in one place, crossing, as I already described it, over the land, so the discoveries I made in that little journey made me very eager to see other parts of the coast. And now I had a boat, I thought of nothing but sailing round the island for this purpose that i might do everything with discretion and consideration i fitted up a little mast in my boat and made a sail too out of some of the pieces of the ship's sails which lay in store and of which i had a great stock by me having fitted my mast and sail and tried the boat i found she would sail very well then i made little lockers or boxes at each end of my boat To put provisions, necessaries, ammunition, etc., into, to be kept dry, either from rain or the spray of the sea, and a little long hollow place I cut in the inside of the boat where I could lay my gun, making a flap to hang down over it to keep it dry. I fixed my umbrella also in the step at the stern, like a mast, to stand over my head and keep the heat of the sun off me, like an awning, and thus I every now and then took a little voyage upon the sea. But never went far out, nor far from the little creek. At last, being eager to view the circumference of my little kingdom, I resolved upon my cruise, and accordingly I victualled my ship for the voyage, putting in two dozen of loaves, cakes I should call them, of barley bread, an earthen pot full of parched rice, a food I ate a good deal of, and a little bottle of rum, half a goat, and powder and shot for killing more and two large watch-coats, of those which, as I mentioned before, I had saved out of the seamen's chests. These I took, one to lie upon and the other to cover me in the night. It was the sixth of November, in the sixth year of my reign, or my captivity, which you please, that I set out on this voyage, and I found it much longer than I expected, for though the island itself was not very large, Yet when I came to the east side of it I found a great ledge of rocks lay out about two leagues into the sea, some above water, some under it, and beyond that a shoal of sand, lying dry half a league more, so that I was obliged to go a great way out to sea to double the point. When I first discovered them I was going to give over my enterprise and come back again, not knowing how far it might oblige me to go out to sea, and above all doubting how I should get back again. So I came to an anchor, for I had made a kind of an anchor with a piece of a broken grappling which I got out of the ship. Having secured my boat, I took my gun and went on shore, climbing up a hill, which seemed to overlook that point where I saw the full extent of it, and resolved to venture. In my viewing the sea from that hill where I stood, I perceived a strong, and indeed a most furious current, which ran to the east, and even came close to the point, and I took the more notice of it, because I saw there might be some danger, that when I came into it I might be carried out to sea by the strength of it, and not be able to make the island again. And indeed, had I not got first upon this hill, I believe it would have been so, for there was the same current on the other side of the island, only that it set off at a further distance, and I saw that there was a strong eddy under the shore, so I had nothing to do but to get out of the first current— and I should presently be in an eddy. I lay here, however, two days, because the wind blowing pretty fresh at east-south-east, and that being just contrary to the current, made a great breach of the sea upon the point, so that it was not safe for me to keep too close to the shore for the breach, nor to go too far off, because of the stream. The third day, in the morning, the wind having abated overnight, the sea was calm, and I ventured— But I am a warning to all rash and ignorant pilots, for no sooner was I come to the point when I was not even my boat's length from the shore. But I found myself in a great depth of water, and a current like the sluice of a mill. It carried my boat along with it with such violence that all I could do could not keep her so much as on the edge of it. But I found it hurried me farther and farther out from the eddy which was on my left hand. There was no wind-stirring to help me, and all I could do with my paddles signified nothing, and now I began to give myself over for lost, for as the current was on both sides of the island, I knew in a few leagues' distance they must join again, and then I was irrecoverably gone, nor did I see any possibility of avoiding it, so that I had no prospect before me but of perishing, not by the sea, for that was calm enough, but of starving from hunger, I had indeed found a tortoise on the shore, as big almost as I could lift, and had tossed it into the boat, and I had a great jar of fresh water, that is to say, one of my earthen pots. But what was all this to being driven into the vast ocean, where, to be sure, there was no shore, no mainland or island, for a thousand leagues at least? and now I saw how easy it was for the providence of God to make even the most miserable condition of mankind worse. Now I looked back upon my desolate, solitary island as the most pleasant place in the world, and all the happiness that my heart could wish for was to be but there again. I stretched out my hands to it, with eager wishes. "O oh, happy desert!' said I. "'I shall never see thee more. "O oh, miserable creature, whither am I going?' Then I reproached myself with my unthankful temper, and that I had repined at my solitary condition, and now what would I give to be on shore there again? Thus we never see the true state of our condition till it is illustrated to us by its contraries, nor know how to value what we enjoy, but by the want of it. It is scarcely possible to imagine the consternation I was now in, being driven from my beloved island— for so it appeared to me now to be, into the wide ocean, almost two leagues, and in the utmost despair of ever recovering it again. However, I worked hard till, indeed my strength was almost exhausted, and kept my boat as much to the northward, that is, towards the side of the current which the eddy lay on, as possibly I could, when about noon, as the sun passed the meridian, I thought I felt a little breeze of wind in my face, springing up from south-southeast. This cheered my heart a little, and especially when, in about half an hour more, it blew a pretty gentle gale. By this time I had got at a frightful distance from the island, and had the least cloudy or hazy weather intervene, I had been undone another way, too, for I had no compass on board, and should never have known how to have steered toward the island, if I had but once lost sight of it. With the weather continuing clear, I applied myself to get up my mast again, and spread my sail, standing away to the north as much as possible, to get out of the current. Just as I had set my mast and sail, and the boat began to stretch away, I saw even by the clearness of the water some alteration of the current was near, for where the current was so strong the water was foul, but perceiving the water clear, I found the current abate and presently I found to the east, at about half a mile, a breach of the sea upon some rocks. These rocks I found caused the current to part again, and as the main stress of it ran away more southerly, leaving the rocks to the northeast, so the other returned by the repulse of the rocks, and made a strong eddy, which ran back again to the northwest with a very sharp stream. They who know what it is to have a reprieve brought to them, upon the latter or to be rescued from thieves just going to murder them, or who have been in such extremities, may guess what my present surprise of joy was, and how gladly I put my boat into the stream of this eddy, and the wind also freshening, how gladly I spread my sail to it, running cheerfully before the wind, and with a strong tide or eddy under foot. This eddy carried me about a league on my way back again, directly towards the island, but about two leagues more to the northward than the current which carried me away at first, so that when I came near the island, I found myself open to the northern shore of it, that is to say, the other end of the island, opposite to that which I went out from. When I had made something more than a league of way by the help of this current or eddy, I found it was spent, and served me no further. However, I found that being between two great currents, that is, that on the south side which had hurried me away, and that on the north which lay about a league on the other side, I say, between these two, in the wake of the island, I found the water at least still, and running no way, and having still a breeze of wind fair for me, I kept on steering directly for the island, though not making such fresh way as I did before. About four o'clock in the evening, being then within a league of the island, I found the point of the rocks which occasioned this disaster stretching out, as is described before, to the southward, and casting off the current more southerly, had, of course, made another eddy to the north, and this I found very strong, but not directly setting the way my course lay, which was due west, but almost full north. However, having a fresh gale, I stretched across this eddy, slanting northwest and in about an hour came within about a mile of the shore, where, it being smooth water, I soon got to land. When I was on shore I fell on my knees and gave God thanks for my deliverance, resolving to lay aside all thoughts of my deliverance by my boat, and refreshing myself with such things as I had, I brought my boat close to the shore, in a little cove that I had spied under some trees, and laid me down to sleep— being quite spent with the labour and fatigue of the voyage. I was now at a great loss which way to get home with my boat. I had run so much hazard, and knew too much of the case, to think of attempting it by the way I went out, and what might be at the other side, I mean the west side, I knew not, nor had I any mind to run any more ventures, so I resolved on the next morning to make my way westward along the shore, and to see if there was no creek where I might lay up my frigate in safety, so as to have her again if I wanted her. In about three miles or thereabouts, coasting the shore, I came to a very good inlet or bay, about a mile over, which narrowed till it came to a very little rivulet or brook, where I found a very convenient harbour for my boat, and where she lay as if she had been in a little dock made on purpose for her. Here I put in, and having stowed my boat very safe, I went on shore to look about me and see where I was. I soon found I had but a little passed by the place where I had been before, when I travelled on foot to that shore, so taking nothing out of my boat but my gun and umbrella, for it was exceedingly hot, I began my march. The way was comfortable enough after such a voyage as I had been upon, and I reached my old bower in the evening, where I found everything standing as I left it, for I always kept it in good order being, as I said before, my country-house. I got over the fence, and laid me down in the shade to rest my limbs, for I was very weary, and fell asleep. But, judge you, if you can, that read my story, what a surprise I must be in when I was awaked out of my sleep by a voice calling me by my name several times. "'Robin! Robin! Robin Crusoe! Poor Robin Crusoe! Where are you, Robin Crusoe?' where are you where have you been i was so dead asleep at first being fatigued with rowing for part of the day and with walking the latter part that i did not wake thoroughly but dozing thought i dreamed that somebody spoke to me but as the voice continued to repeat robin crusoe robin crusoe at last i began to wake more perfectly and was at first dreadfully frightened and started up in the utmost consternation but no sooner were my eyes open but I saw my Paul sitting on the top of the hedge, and immediately knew that it was he that spoke to me. For just in such bemoaning language I had used to talk to him and teach him, and he had learned it so perfectly that he would sit upon my finger and lay his bill close to my face and cry, Poor Robin Crusoe! Where are you? Where have you been? How came you here? and such things as I had taught him. However, even though I knew it was the parrot, and that, indeed, it could be nobody else, it was a good while before I could compose myself. First I was amazed how the creature got thither, and then how he should just keep about the place and nowhere else. But as I was well satisfied it could be nobody but Honest Paul, I got over it, and holding out my hand and calling him by his name, Paul, the sociable creature came to me, sat upon my thumb, as he used to do, and continued talking to me. "'Poor Robin Crusoe! And how did I come here? And where had I been?' Just as if he had been overjoyed to see me again, and so I carried him home along with me. I had now had enough of rambling to see for some time, and had enough to do for many days to sit still and reflect upon the danger I had been in. I would have been very glad to have had my boat again on my side of the island, but I knew not how it was practicable to get it about. As to the east side of the island, which I had gone round, I knew well enough there was no venturing that way. My very heart would shrink, and my very blood run chill but to think of it. And as to the other side of the island, I did not know how it might be there but supposing the current ran with the same force against the shore at the east as it passed by it on the other, I might run the same risk of being driven down the stream and carried by the island as I had been before of being carried away from it. So with these thoughts I contented myself to be without any boat, though it had been the product of so many months' labour to make it, and of so many more to get it into the sea." In this government of my temper I remained near a year, and lived a very sedate, retired life, as you may well suppose, and my thoughts being very much composed as to my condition, and fully comforted in resigning myself to the dispositions of providence, I thought I lived really very happily in all things, except that of society. I improved myself in this time in all the mechanic exercises which my necessities put me upon applying myself to, and I believe I should, upon occasion, have made a very good carpenter, especially considering how few tools I had. Besides this, I arrived at an unexpected perfection in my earthenware, and contrived well enough to make them with a wheel, which I found infinitely easier and better, because I made things round and shaped, which before were filthy things indeed to look on. But I think I was never more vain of my own performance, or more joyful for anything I found out, than for my being able to make a tobacco-pipe. And though it was a very ugly, clumsy thing when it was done, and only burned red, like other earthenware, yet it was hard and firm, and would draw the smoke, I was exceedingly comforted with it. For I had been always used to smoke, and there were pipes in the ship, but I forgot them at first, not thinking there was tobacco in the island. And afterwards, when I searched the ship again, I could not come at any pipes." In my wickerware also I improved much, and made abundance of necessary baskets, as well as my inventions showed me, though not very handsome, yet they were such as were very handy and convenient for laying things up in, or fetching things home. For example, if I killed a goat abroad, I could hang it up in a tree, flay it, dress it, and cut it in pieces, and bring it home in a basket, and the like by a turtle, I could cut it up, take out the eggs and a piece or two of the flesh, which was enough for me, and bring them home in a basket, and leave the rest behind me. Also, large deep baskets were the receivers of my corn, which I always rubbed out as soon as it was dry and cured, and kept it in great baskets. I began now to perceive my powder abated considerably. This was a want which was impossible for me to supply, and I began seriously to consider what I must do when I should have no more powder, that is to say, how I should kill any goats. I had, as is observed in the third year of my being here, kept a young kid, and bred her up tame, and I was in hopes of getting a he-goat, but I could not by any means bring it to pass, till my kid grew an old goat, and as I could never find in my heart to kill her, she died at last of mere age. And being now in the eleventh year of my residence, and, as I have said, my ammunition growing low, I set myself to study some art to trap and snare the goats, to see whether I could not catch some of them alive, and particularly I wanted a she-goat great with young. For this purpose I made snares to hamper them, and I do believe they were more than once taken in them, but my tackle was not good, for I had no wire, and I always found them broken and my bait devoured. At length I resolved to try a pitfall, so I dug several large pits in the earth, in places where I had observed the goats used to feed, and over those pits I placed hurdles of my own making, too, with a great weight upon them, and several times I put ears of barley and dry rice without setting the trap, and I could easily perceive that the goats had gone in and eaten up the corn, for I could see the marks of their feet. At length I set three traps in one night, and going the next morning I found them, all standing, and yet the bait eaten and gone this was very discouraging. However, I altered my traps, and not to trouble you with particulars, going one morning to see my traps, I found in one of them a large old he-goat, and in one of the others three kids, a male and two females. As to the old one, I knew not what to do with him. He was so fierce I durst not go into the pit to him, that is to say, to bring him away alive, which was what I wanted. I could have killed him, But that was not my business, nor would it answer my end. So I even let him out, and he ran away as if he had been frightened out of his wits. But I did not then know what I afterwards learned, that hunger will tame a lion. If I had let him stay three or four days without food, and then have carried him some water to drink and then a little corn, he would have been as tame as one of the kids, for they are mighty sagacious tractable creatures where they are well used. However, for the present I let him go, knowing no better at that time. Then I went to the three kids, and taking them one by one, I tied them with strings together, and with some difficulty brought them all home. It was a good while before they would feed, but throwing them some sweet corn, it tempted them, and they began to be tame. And now I found that if I expected to supply myself with goat's flesh, when I had no powder or shot left, Breeding some up tame was my only way, when, perhaps, I might have them about my house like a flock of sheep. But then it occurred to me that I must keep the tame from the wild, or else they would always run wild when they grew up, and the only way for this was to have some enclosed piece of ground, well fenced either with hedge or pail, to keep them in so effectually that those within might not break out, or those without break in. This was a great undertaking for one pair of hands, yet, as I saw there was an absolute necessity for doing it, my first work was to find out a proper piece of ground, where there was likely to be herbage for them to eat, water for them to drink, and cover to keep them from the sun. Those who understand such enclosures will think I had very little contrivance when I pitched upon a place very proper for all these, being a plain open piece of meadow-land, or savannah as our people call it in the western colonies, which had two or three little drills of fresh water in it, and at one end it was very woody. I say they will smile at my forecast, when I shall tell them I began by enclosing this piece of ground in such a manner that, my hedge or pail, must have been at least two miles about. Nor was the madness of it so great as to the compass, for if it was ten miles about, I was like to have time enough to do it in but I did not consider that my goats would be as wild in so much compass as if they had had the whole island, and I should have so much room to chase them in that I should never catch them. My hedge was begun and carried on, I believe, about fifty yards when this thought occurred to me, so I presently stopped short, and for the beginning I resolved to enclose a piece of about one hundred and fifty yards in length, and one hundred yards in breadth which, as it would maintain as many as I should have in any reasonable time, so, as my stock increased, I could add more ground to my enclosure. This was acting with some prudence, and I went to work with courage. I was about three months hedging in the first piece, and till I had done it, I tethered the three kids in the best part of it, and used them to feed as near me as possible, to make them familiar. And very often I would go and carry them some ears of barley— or a handful of rice, and feed them out of my hand, so that after my enclosure was finished and I let them loose, they would follow me up and down, bleating after me for a handful of corn. This answered my end, and in about a year and a half I had a flock of about twelve goats, kids and all, and in two years more I had three and forty, besides several that I took and killed for my food. After that, I enclosed five several pieces of ground to feed them in with little pens to drive them to take them as I wanted, and gates out of one piece of ground into another. But this was not all. For now I not only had goat's flesh to feed on when I pleased, but milk too, a thing which, indeed, in the beginning I did not so much as think of, and which, when it came into my thoughts, was really an agreeable surprise, for now I set up my dairy, and had sometimes a gallon or two of milk in a day, and his nature, who gives supplies of food to every creature, dictates even naturally how to make use of it, so I, that had never milked a cow, much less a goat, or seen butter or cheese made only when I was a boy, after a great many assays and miscarriages, made both butter and cheese at last, also salt, though I found it partly made to my hand by the heat of the sun upon some of the rocks of the sea, and never wanted it afterwards how mercifully can our Creator treat His creatures, even in those conditions in which they are seemed to be overwhelmed in destruction? How can He sweeten the bitterest providences, and give us cause to praise Him for dungeons and prisons? What a table was here spread for me in the wilderness, where I saw nothing at first but to perish for hunger! End of chapter 10